Hi, everybody. I'm Matt Lachlan. Thanks for joining me for this week's edition of Pirates Talk. For the first time since 1994, Seton Hall has gone to Villanova and defeated the Wildcats in Philadelphia. That was accomplished on Saturday, as before a crowd of over 20,000 at Wells Fargo Center, Seton Hall erased a small halftime deficit and went on to a win over their heated rivals. And now the gap is three games in the race for the top spot in the conference. Seton Hall checking in at 10-1, and while suddenly there's a three-way tie for second place. As we record this, Marquette, Creighton, and Nova are all at 7-4. and four. So Seton Hall's future and fate is in its own hands. And who better to bring in to this week's show to discuss the Hall's fortunes than the man who has covered them for so many years and done a fantastic job writing for the Asbury Park Press and giving you all the details, the background, and the insight. He is, of course, Jerry Carino, who not only writes for the Asbury Park Press, but is also a member of the voting board for the AP Top 25. So let's bring, without further ado, our guest to the podium, Jerry Carino. So, Jerry, let's start with the quote-unquote disturbing news that broke on Monday night. Brian Custer is not going to do the game on Fox <laughs> <laughs> so yes. Wednesday against Creighton. Does that destroy Seton Hall's chances? Someone had a great comment. It's like they lost a key player in the game. 25-0 and with Custer on the call, and he was scheduled to do it, Matt, and then they pulled him off for Gus and Raff. You know, Gus and, Gus and Raff are the A-team obviously for Fox and uh, they're the A team and, and uh, Gus is being, uh, Raph is being honored by Seton Hall. They're having a, a Raph bobblehead giveaway. Incredible. So it makes perfect sense for them to do the game, uh, but yeah, it's, it's a little weird. And I'm telling you, I will tell you this, Kevin Willard is deeply suspicious, uh, deeply a uh, superstitious, deeply superstitious. He's going to be, he's going to be crushed. <laughs> he's going to be crushed when he sees that. So, but I will, but I will, the consolation to pirate fans is, Custer is scheduled to return for the for the Butler game uh, the following Wednesday. Okay, good news. So get back on the beam. And listen, I know we joke about things like that, but it's a pretty impressive streak, quite frankly. And it does raise an eyebrow when he's taken off the game because no one wants to jinx the good vibes. But I get it all the time on the hockey side. If a goalie's got a shutout, there are people who don't want to hear that. And they don't want anybody to say that. And yeah. I have fun with it kind of working around it. But in the end... If I had that kind of power, <laughs> give us your thoughts on the victory by Seton Hall over Villanova. Well, it was just a landmark moment, uh, Matt. And you've seen it 26 years, 1994, and such a difficult place to win. Now, most of those losses were in the pavilion, but Seton Hall had gotten throttled in the Wells Fargo Center two years running. Look, you knew that was going to be different. They were not going to get beat bad in this game. It was going to be a good game, and it was. But, you know, Seton Hall's better. They're just better than Villanova. And this team is battle-tested. They went and played in places like the Rack and at Iowa State. And, you know, they played in that crazy uh, preseason, that early season tournament in November, you know, to, in the Bahamas and Atlantis against these top teams to prepare for moments like this. And so a team is now incredible 6-0 and on the road, Matt, in the Big East. I've never seen anything like it. You know, for, for once, for once in the series against Villanova, Seton Hall had the veteran tested guys and Villanova was the young team sort of uh, on the, a little bit under the bright lights, uh, not used to it. And so that's, this is what you get for developing players over the course of time. And it showed. It's just been an incredible ride and it did show particularly in that second half. So who stood out from your 
mind's eye. I mean, we can go over a bunch of plays and players, but who was the key in your mind's eye to that second half uh, comeback? It was minor. It was a small deficit at the half, but the comeback in the second half. Well, a lot of people felt like once Villanova took that lead, Seton Hall was in trouble because uh, the building was rocking. It was loud, 20,000 fans. But to me, it was three guys. First of all, Sandro Mamukalashvili was incredible. Uh, 17 points, eight rebounds, three three-pointers. Jay Wright, and I asked him afterwards, he didn't game plan for that. They were giving him that shot to double Miles Powell, and they did do a good job on Powell, but that's why Seton Hall's so hard to defend. Sandro burned him. This is a guy just, you know, 11 days back from being cleared after seven weeks off with a broken wrist, played his best game, I think, of his career. And so he was the big dif- difference. Also, his presence allowed Kevin Willard to go small, completely, I've got to give Willard credit here, completely adjusted his lineup when Romaro Gill got in some foul trouble, Villanova was going at him, trying to get him out of the game. So Kevin went small, and Sandro's got that, he's a mobile big, changes the entire look. So Seton Hall's got versatility. They can beat you big. They can beat you small. They can beat you with mobile bigs. And that's why the team can go a long way. The second guy I want to highlight is Shavar Reynolds, who played 22 minutes. This is a guy who was a walk-on who was completely unrecruited by Division One at all. He was headed to Division Three. Kevin upgraded him a scholarship after his freshman year. And now they're calling on him as a top guard off the bench to spell either position, Quincy McKnight and Miles Powell. And they needed him to do both because both guys, Powell and McKnight, had four fouls for like the last eight minutes of the game. So Reynolds was huge. He was able to guard Colin Gillespie, did a great job. And it's the old saying in college basketball, you cut off the head and the body dies. Gillespie's the head. He's the point guard. And, he, you know, uh, Reynolds decapitated him. And that made a huge difference in the game. He also hit a triple. He's the second guy. Third guy, Jared Roden. Numbers won't jump out at you, Matt. He had the biggest plus-minus of the game, plus 16. He, he, I guess he, he got banged up in a collision at the end of the first half. He sat for like the last six minutes. That's when Villanova made their run. He's just a glue guy who makes him better everywhere. And you see the difference when he's in the game. So three guys, you know, two of whom are, you know, are not household names. And that's what make this, makes this team so good. Well, and the development of Roden has been very good to witness. And for Reynolds, I mean, he and Anthony Nelson, to me, and I see a lot of their games, you see all of them virtually, uh, their development was stymied a little bit this year. I, I was a little concerned what, what they would do at that point guard spot when McKnight went out. And particularly when he suffered that knee injury, I'm like, oh boy, they're in trouble anyway if he can't play. But I don't know who can step in because they're the designated guys. But I thought Shavar answered a lot of questions on Saturday. No doubt. And I suspect that Anthony Nelson, I think, I think he's a little banged up. I suspect there might be some nagging injuries that are holding him back a little bit. Um, also, he's just more of a, he needs a fuller run to maybe get the most out of him. Like you saw, he played well against Maryland when, uh, when Powell was hurt and he had to run the point. He played well over 30-somewhat minutes. But maybe he's not a guy who can put in there for two, three minutes in a spurt for instant energy. Uh, that's, that's Reynolds. And so that's the beauty of it. Kevin's got, you know, he's got nine, ten guys to choose from. Every guy can basically hold his weight. And you're looking for reasons Seton Hall can advance deep into March. Miles Powell's number one. The depth and versatility of the lineup is number two. There's no doubt they've got so many ingredients. I have been thoroughly impressed by Kevin Willard's tactics this year. Uh, He substitutes at the right time. Admittedly, he's got the weapons. But to get a a 10-player rotation to work as finely as generally he's been able to work it really is a testament to him and his coaching staff, don't you think? 
Yeah, this is his finest hour. He's had a, just a tremendous year. Uh, you know, I saw, I went up there to practice after Mamu got hurt, and he was worried. He's like, we have to remake the way we play. Guys have to learn new positions. I have to teach Jared Roden the four, you know, the power forward spot. He's 6'6", six, six, you know, wing, two-guard wing. And it's going to take some time. And boy, did he get those guys to adjust and buy in. You got to give a lot of credit to Grant Filmar, too, his right-hand man, who has developed Roe Gill. Romero Gill has come from nowhere to be an upper-tier center and a rim protector and also a guy who can finish on a pick-and-roll. So the staff has done just a tremendous job. Well, Kevin, Kevin's always been, Matt, a very strong uh, player development coach. His players have all, you know, there are exceptions. His players have almost always gotten better. Remember, Miles Powell was, he was a low end, a mid end, mid, mid range four star. No one thought he'd be an All American. So Kevin's always done that. What he, where he's come a long way in two areas one is managing a locker room. This team could have fallen apart when Powell and Mamu were hurt, and that could ruin a lot of seasons. He kept these guys together and focused, and it's a testament to the guys, the players' character, but also to Kevin's maturity as a coach behind the scenes. In the third area, Kevin's just become a very good tactical, you know, in-game tactician, making adjustments, knowing when to sub, knowing the right combos, feeling the game out, you know, zone, man, etc. He's just very good. He's listen, Jay Wright is the dean of the Big East coaches, and Kevin is number two. If Wright ever left to go to the pros, he would never take another college job. Kevin will be the dean of a major conference, and he will have earned it. Uh, he's been terrific this year. Well, he's been terrific throughout his reign. He has elevated Seton Hall, and they're on the verge of their fifth straight NCAA tournament uh, appearance. So uh, take us through tomorrow's game. We're recording this on Tuesday morning. Take us through the, the game on Wednesday at The Rock and what you anticipate. So Creighton presents a unique challenge, right? And they're, they're kind of like Villanova in the sense that They'll spread you out and fire away. But when they're hot, they're really, really hot. And so a lot of, a lot of beating Creighton depends on Creighton. So, yes, yeah, Seton Hall is going to extend the defense, of course, and it helps that Quincy McKnight, you know, Creighton's got a very good point guard. Marcus Zerowski, Zerowski, I always get his name wrong. Quincy McKnight will, you know, get to draw him, and I'm sure he'll do a good job with Reynolds. But Creighton is, is about, it's about Creighton, are they hot or not? And if they're hot, they're hard to beat. And if they're not, then they're beatable. So I don't know what Creighton team's going to show up. Uh, but, you know, Seton Hall has, they've shown the ability to play so versatile. So this is a game where if Creighton's going to put five guys around the perimeter, then Kevin Willard can, can sit Rogill and he can put Mama with five and send all of his guys out there. So that's what you want. You don't want a center who, who likes to be in the paint drawn out to cover threes and then it opens up all kinds of issues. So Kevin, I, I foresee Kevin playing small. That lineup he had the second half against Villanova, I foresee a lot of that happening. Um, and, you know, if they do that and, and they can, obviously, if Creighton's not red hot, and they can stymie them a little bit at the point of attack. Seton Hall should be favored to win at home. But it's a game where Creighton could easily win this game. They, they will be, uh, I would say, probably the best team that has come in this year into the Rock to this point, right? Because Villanova hasn't come in yet. Mm -hmm. Butler, Butler hasn't come in yet. Uh, and Michigan State was great when they came in, but they're playing bad, pretty poorly now. So this is probably the biggest challenge so far at home for Seton Hall. And even though that Michigan State game was a loss, uh, it leads me to a question about Ken Palm and quad one wins, et cetera, et cetera. I know it wasn't a win, but the point is, you're right. Back then, they were at 
were near the top of the heap, and now they've fallen lately. So all these rankings that we see, their numbers, they get adjusted just because you beat a team, and I know they didn't, but let's say the Maryland game. You beat Maryland, but it's where Maryland will end up, correct? With how- that's right. So that's right. So yeah. a lot of people, a lot of people, Matt, think the flaw in the metric system that they're using is that yes, it's it's not when you beat them, it's how they end up. Ultimately, that's how you get judged. So the Michigan State loss at the time. Listen, I still think Michigan State's very good. I'm sure they'll be fine in March. They usually are. But at the time, you know, they were number three in the country. Now they're unranked. So you get a lot less credit in the final accounting for that, although their metrics are still somewhat high. But, yeah, it's, it's when you beat them. So that's, that's the whole deal. Like, Rutgers gets the full credit for beating Seton Hall. Even though Seton Hall was down and out with injuries, they get the full credit for that. Now that Seton Hall's rolling, it's helping Rutgers. So it's a flaw in the metric system. If you look at the net and Ken Palm, there's some bizarre anomalies in there. Like Ohio State is ranked like 11th or 12th. They might even be ahead of Seton Hall. They're not very good. You know, they're not very good. And they, they're four and six, five and seven in the Big Ten. And so, but yet they're higher. How is that even possible? You know, Seton Hall has 13 quadrant one and two wins, 13. There's teams ahead of them or right around their net and Ken Palm that have like six or seven. So it's bizarre. I'm not a mathematician, and I, nor do I think mathematicians should see, should, should see the NCAA tournament. <laughs> you know, there's got to be some eye test and common sense applied. And Seton Hall is not, I don't think they are a three seed. I think they're a two seed. So we'll have to see if that, how that shakes out in March. But it is concerning and very, I would think, confusing to someone who's not really paying super close attention to how it works. You mentioned they're a three seed. You think they're a two seed because now the, the tournament committee is starting to put out its preliminary numbers right yeah they so they did it like they do this 16 team bracket reveal they did it on saturday and it's done by the selection committee so that gives you an insight into their thought process seton hall was a three which probably they were at the time after beating villanova i think they jump a line to two but the bigger issue i had with that was that they put seton hall as a three in the south and to me like the team projected that the big east champion should not get stuck in the south with baylor the number one overall team They'd have to play them in Houston in a regional. I think that's BS. The Big East champion should be in the East. And the East is Madison Square Garden. So there's logistical complications there, okay? Because, do you, you know, do you give Seton Hall as a three seed, for example? Do you put them in the East and Duke is a two and San Diego State's the one? Suddenly Seton Hall is the home court. Of course, they would never really have a home court against Duke. But are you giving them a localized advantage? There's some complications there. Added by the fact that Duke, Duke's AD is the selection chair, selection committee chair. And, of course, everyone you know, he leaves the room, blah, 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 <laughs> when they decide Duke. Come on. Duke gets every conceivable seating advantage. It's been going on for decades. It's not going to disappear because their AD is the chair. So Duke's going to be in the East. Will, they, will Seton Hall get in the East? Will they still send them elsewhere to, to avoid sliding Duke? I don't know. I think these are legitimate questions. I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theory nut. I think the legitimate questions and what the bracket reveal told me is that Seton Hall's got to go above and beyond to get into the East. And so there's work to be done still for them. And that leads me to uh, the next to last question. I know you got to run and then we'll talk just briefly about the new podcast you're involved in. But uh, what do you see as the path at this point? They've got a three game lead uh, on everybody else in the uh, race for the top spot. Do you see any way you know, what's your worst case scenario? Because the best case, obviously, is they play it out and they win. Is there really a threat to their primacy 
as the Big East champ. They do. Seton Hall does have some tough games left. They do. They do have to go to Marquette. Uh, they do have to go to Creighton. They still have Villanova and Butler coming in. They do have some tough games, but I, I just you have a three-game lead with seven games to go. You can't. You have to win the league. To me, it's not about will they win the league or not. It's about how many wins can they rack up while winning the league. So I would be shocked if they didn't win the league, Matt. I'm not going. They're not going to run the table. They're not going to finish 17 and one. That's not going to happen. Okay. They're going to lose a couple more games. But to me, the question is: Do you win the league at 13 and five? Do you win it at 14 and four? Do you win it at 15 and three? Can you possibly go 16 and two? You know, that's kind of what the question is. How many wins can they rack up? And can they can they get that two seed? I think a one might be out of play. Can they get a two and stay in the East? That's kind of what it's about. And the way they're playing, I think it's definitely possible. And finally, tell us about the podcast uh, that you've just started. Okay. So everybody else is in the podcast business, right? So it's time. It's time for us to get in. We have this big audience for college basketball. So we are the Asbury Park Press, app.com, is initiating the Jersey Jump Shot. And <laughs> I like I, it. I wish I could take credit for the name. I can't. Ryan Ross came up with it. He's going to be our host. Steve Ellison and I, with maybe a contribution from the Bergen Records, Chris Eisman, will be talking Jersey college hoops down the stretch from now through March Madness on a regular basis. Seton Hall, Rutgers, Monmouth, Princeton. The, the Wild Mac with St. Peter's. There's possibly four teams that can make the NCAA tournament from Jersey for the first time since 91, and we'll be breaking it down on a regular basis. And no one better to do that. Jerry, thanks very much for your time. We look forward to uh, the rollout uh, as it's begun of that podcast, and we thank you very much for your time today. Thanks, Matt. I'll talk to you soon, I hope. You got it. And that will do it for this edition of Pirates Talk. Thanks very much, everyone, for your company. We'll see you next time. Let's go Pirates. Bye-bye.